0: Welcome to the What's Next podcast with Tiffany Bova. Tiffany is a top-rated speaker, thought leader, and sales and marketing influencer known around the world as an industry visionary. Today, she's using her 20 years of sales experience to help companies focus on creating a high growth culture while adapting to the new realities of the market. She's always asking herself, what's next? Hello, everybody. Welcome to my What's Next podcast. This is Tiffany Bova, and I have the honor today of having Whitney Johnson with us. Whitney is recognized as one of the world's most influential management thinkers in 2015 and was a finalist for the Top Thinkers on Talent at the Biennial Thinkers 50 Ceremony in London. She is best known for her work on driving corporate innovation through personal disruption. She's a frequent contributor to and writer for the Harvard Business Review and is a LinkedIn influencer. She's the author of the critically acclaimed Disrupt Yourself, which is actually one of my favorite books, putting in the Power of Disruption, Innovation to Work, and Dare Dream Do. It is an honor to have you today, Whitney. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you, Tiffany, for having me.
0: Yes. Well, we start off our podcast with something I like to call bullish and bearish and nothing too heavy. Just, you know, very quick, off the cuff, couple of questions, and then you just answer sort of bullish, you agree with it, bearish, you disagree with it. And of course, uh, with the previous guests I've had on, everyone gets a little gray zone too. So <laughs> apparently <laughs> bullish and bearish, you get a little wiggle room, but uh, let's let's start. Uh, this one's probably going to be really easy for you. The ability for personal disruption, bullish or bearish? Bullish, yes. <laughs> bullish. And of course. Uh, And I was reading a stat the other day that um, internal factors versus external factors have far more impact on companies' abilities to actually respond to what's going on in the market. So are you bullish on companies being able to reorganize themselves and fix or bearish and, and fix those internal factors that may be holding
1: them back? Neutral, because it depends on the company. I'm bullish if the company has the right factors in place, and I'm very bearish if they don't. Great. Well, let's dig into that a little bit, because uh, I agree. And
0: then uh, the next one is a little more future. Uh, Predictive analytics and machine learning, helping executives run their business. So looking for patterns, either with their people, their talent, their systems, their growth, uh, and giving them advice on what they should do next. Bullish. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that was painless, I hope. (laughs) Yes. Well, let's start at the top because I think, uh, you know, one of the reasons I was, I reached out to you many years ago was on this, um, you know, in your book, Disrupt Yourself Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. Talk me through sort of what that means and sort of what your thinking was and what drew you to decide to write the book.
1: I first discovered disruptive innovation in I'd say 2004 or so. So I was still working as an equity analyst on Wall Street and I was covering emerging markets, telecom and media. And over and again, I would find that the wireless subscriber numbers were just beating my estimates quarter after quarter after quarter, and Wireline wasn't growing at all. And so when I discovered the book, Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen, I realized that this was explaining exactly what was happening, that wireless was disrupting Wireline. And so over the next couple of years, I actually was able to connect with Clayton Christensen and work with him at co-founding an investment firm that invested in disruptive stocks, either early stage companies or, um, or publicly traded securities. And as I was doing this work with him over the course of six or seven years, I realized that it wasn't just products and services and companies and countries that disrupt, but in fact, um, people disrupt, and that the fundamental unit of disruption is the individual. And so that really took me on this journey of trying to think about and building out IP around this framework of personal disruption and diagnostics that allow you to figure out if it's time to disrupt and and how well you in fact are able to harness change, because that's really what personal disruption is, It's the ability, it's, it's equipping yourself with the tools to harness change either as an individual or, or not either, but as an individual and as an organization.
0: Yeah. And I find that fascinating because, you know, on, on my travels around the world, people will lean in on, they think it's one thing that is the cause of challenge in their business. And when you back up Far enough, I think, and and you and I probably have a an interesting perspective and and view because we don't work in these businesses we talk to, right? And so we're not caught in the weeds of the day to day. But a lot of times I find it is the people in process that's holding them back, and not necessarily what they, you know, what they're selling or their market position uh, that they have. And so pivoting from looking at the business to pivoting to people was it a natural for you? Did you find uh, those customers and clients you were working with, and even the securities you were investing with, and the work you were doing with Clayton. Did you find that people were originally or, you know, open to this people conversation, or did they want to just focus on the business?
1: So, such a great question. What what I would say is so. In answer, first of all, to your question of is it instinctive for me, I think the answer is probably yes. I mean, I I, I tend to be very introspective, and I remember as a as a stock analyst um, at one point, I had a stock that I'd had a I'd had a sell on the stock. It was actually Televisa, and um, after running my numbers, but then also having this interview with the CEO and really understanding what was motivating him. My, I became persuaded that the stock was now a buy. I thought the numbers are going to turn around because the CEO is motivated to turn this around. And because he's motivated, he's going to make it happen. So for me, the the personal piece of it, or, you know, the sort of psychological motivations are very, very important um, um, in the business. I, I think in terms of Answering your question, were people inclined to look at this? You know, it really depends. I I find that some people hear what I'm saying and say, Yes, I get this, let's do this. Um, There are other people that think it's kind of soft and um, want to just focus on the products and services. And so it's always curious to me, and sometimes. When they are in, it's either soft or they are incumbents themselves and in very comfortable positions. So they don't necessarily want to hear this idea that it's important for them to disrupt themselves in order to drive innovation inside of their company. So it's kind of a fascinating um, sort of meta psychological study, if you will, to look at who's interested and engaged in these ideas and who sort of could, could do without them.
0: Yeah, I think it all boils down to change, right? We as human beings, I I always like to joke that, you know, the New Year's resolution by sort of January 7th is over and done. Right. (laughs) It's like, can I make it 30 days past January 1st, right? On my New Year's resolution. So personally changing in our personal lives is really hard. And so I would guess that in your professional life, which is a different dynamic, right? I mean, you don't, it's not your children or your spouse, which may even be more hard. You know it must be, it may even be harder to sort of motivate to change. but in your work life, you know you've got all these different uh, hidden agendas and personalities and uh, you know, aspirations of moving up in the organization and you know, job protectionism and all kinds of things happening around this this movement, if you will, that a CEO is trying to instill in his people. And so I think today, in many cases, companies that sell, technology if you will are actually selling change and not the products and i think that's why adoption has that you know the the sort of the hype cycle the crossing the chasm you know whichever innovator's dilemma right whichever term you want to use on this adoption curve of early adopters it's almost similar around change right because early adopters are just better at change wouldn't you say
1: yeah they are they're better at change they're more comfortable with it they've um They've done it more, and um, I would say that they could be natively good at it, but I think more often than not, they've just practiced adopting new ideas. But it is interesting that you say that, because oftentimes, people will call me in and say, okay, we've got the technology, we know the technology is, work, is going to work, what we need you to do is help us manage the people side of this, and and do the change management piece of this, and and oftentimes, people say to me, well, I want to disrupt myself, and my boss won't let me, and my answer always is that if you want to be an agent of disruption, first become its subject. And it may be that your boss won't let you try something new, but are you letting the people who work for you try something new? It sounds simplistic, but I think that we forget how much change we can affect within our own sphere of influence. And so I, I continually Remind people and encourage people to change what is within their purview to change, and recognizing that that will move things a lot further forward than they actually believe that they will. And so, there's sort of a self-efficacy piece in this, but I think it's a really important, in fact, a, a linchpin to to the whole process of of harnessing change inside of your organization.
0: Yeah, and some people that will be listening to this right have the ability; they they have an organization that works for them, let's say. But we may also have individual contributors, right? Where their sphere of influence is themselves. And, and I always say that, you know, one of the only things we can control in our work lives is our behavior, right? The way we show up and what we do every day, et cetera. Because lots of what we do for work is sort of pre-described or predefined for us, right? That you are a call center agent, or you're a salesperson, or you're in marketing, or you're in finance, whatever it might be, right? And you kind of have your set things that you need to do. And so as individual contributors that may feel stuck, you know, in their own personal growth journey, what advice would you give them to help themselves sort of change if, if upstream isn't sort of warm to the idea of them changing, and then they don't have sort of a downstream sphere of influence, right? They might be just, like I said, an individual contributor. What, what couple of things do you think they can do on a, on a daily basis to, to, to move themselves forward?
1: That's a great question. I think one of the things that happens, in, and I talk a lot, and we, you mentioned adoption curves for a minute, and I talk a lot about the S-curve and reimagining the S-curve to help us understand the psychology of disruption of how when you first get into a role, it's brand new, you're at the low end of the S-curve and you're trying to figure things out, and then as you put in the days and weeks and months of practice, you're going to move into the sweet spot, and it's sort of the steep part, the back of that curve. And then as you get to the top, you're going to be very competent and comfortable. Things will be easy, but you run the risk of getting, getting bored. And I think one of the things that can happen sometimes for for anyone but certainly for an individual contributor is is if you're at the low end of the curve and you feel like you're not getting anything done, one of the things to consider is, is it possible that it's actually not the right curve for you? Um, and so two questions that you want to ask yourself um, before you can determine whether or not it's the right curve for you to be on or the right role specifically is, you know, to what extent are you taking on market risk? Are you playing where no one else is playing? Because sometimes you get stymied in what you're trying to do because you're trying to do a job that other people are trying to do. So how can you play out on the fringes and do things jobs that need to be done that you've identified that need to be done that other people aren't necessarily doing. Um, I would say the other thing that's really important to do is to make sure that you are actually playing to your strengths and not just what you do well, but what you do well that others don't. The one way to think about this that that might be helpful is to think about the koala. The koala is, you know, this cuddly little animal. It sleeps 20 hours a day. You think, how does it possibly survive? Well, it survives because it eats eucalyptus leaves. And eucalyptus leaves, as we know, are poisonous to both most other animals and humans. So it has a strength. It's a distinctive strength. So it can survive on eating eucalyptus leaves. The funny thing about our strengths is that We tend to not actually know what they are. And even when we know what they are, we don't tend to use them because they're so easy for us, we don't value them. And so my advice to any person who's sort of saying, I want to do things a little bit differently is look for ways to play where others aren't. And then number one, and then number two, make sure that once you are aware of what your strengths are, to use them and own them. And if those two things are in place and you find yourself still kind of stymied and not enjoying your work at all, it may be a sign that it's time to look for a different role. Um, If you're enjoying it and it's just hard, then you need to persevere because eventually the the momentum is going to come.
0: Yeah. And I couldn't agree more, right? I think that there was a point in time in my thirties, late twenties through my thirties, where I changed jobs like almost every 18 months. and, And it was actually frowned upon. But a lot hmm. of it was that I was accelerating this S-curve, right? I didn't know those things then. I was just kind of like, I'm bored, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want to do more. You know, I'm, I'm trying to double down on my strengths. And so I'd go to my employer and say, hey, you know, I want to do more. Or I want more responsibility or I want to try new things. And they wouldn't, you know, I, they'd say, let us let us think about it and see what we can come back with. You know, 90 days later, they would say, we really value you, but we don't have anything for you. And you'd, I'd have to make the hard decision to just kind of move on. Um hmm. But over that, you know, almost decade, you know, I doubled the responsibility I had in my sphere of influence every time I changed jobs, and it and it led me to uh, opportunities where people saw uh, more in me than I might have in myself. Like I didn't know my strengths, you know, and people mm. would identify them and then, you know, have me do things that would highlight my strengths, if you will. So I I, I definitely think that uh, I couldn't agree with you more. People sometimes frown upon the change job comment. Uh, but I think if you do it the right way and you've exhausted everything and you still find yourself stuck, you owe it to yourself to, to do what's going to, you know, inspire you every day.
1: And, and actually I would, I would take that one step further, Tiffany, as, as I was listening to you talk, I think you owe it to your current employer to do something else. Because once you get to the top of an S curve, get the top of your learning curve, if you're bored Um, because you're bored, you're going to start dialing it in. It's just the way your brain works. And so if you, if you, so you can either jump or you can stay there, but you're probably going to start underperforming at some level. And that does neither you nor the company a service. And so I, I would say you benefited the company in the long run as well as yourself. And I think in that situation, everyone wins.
0: Yeah, and I think you know if you think about disruptive innovation and you think about the many comments that get made today about look if you don't disrupt yourself, someone else will. And and I'm using that in the corporate sense, right? Uh, you know, right that that companies will say, look, if you don't kind of look at your fringe and you know what is really close to your core markets and see can you start to disrupt yourself um, from a business standpoint. Would you agree or disagree that it's not possible if if the employee base, you know, I don't mean everybody, right? But those that are really able to in 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 inflect change into the business, as you were saying, like influencing their sphere, if they're not willing to change, right? And the CEO that like the example you gave, that you said, you know what, I'm at this is a buy stock because I believe this CEO gets it and he's gonna do the work. He's one person, one guy, small business, medium business. What everybody else kind of has to come along for the ride. So if you're a leader of a company or of a business unit or of a product category and you know you have to disrupt and you can clearly see that the team is not able, willing to do that, what, what's the course of action for someone in that situation?
1: Well, I I would say a couple things. Number one is um, when you've got the leader of a team and they are willing to change, then there is a huge trickle-down effect, right? It all comes from the top. And so, um, and that's why sometimes when people will come to me and say, I want you to coach, you know, these two VPs, for example, my thought is, okay, you need to be coached as well, because if you're willing to coach and you're willing to change, then the rest of it will happen. Um... So starting there, but even so, you're going to have some people that aren't ready to change. And I think that what will happen is that when they're not ready to change, they know that they don't want to change. And so I think the most important thing to do is say, okay, here's where we need to go. Here's what I would like you to do. Um, Do you want to do this or not? And frequently what will happen is they will know that it's time for them to go. And so I would say um, you give people the opportunity and then if they're not willing to jump then you you politely and respectfully encourage them to jump to a new S curve i think where we actually fall down frequently in 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 corporate life is that we know it's time to move on and yet we do it so disrespectfully to people That's what they remember um, Because the fact is is that 10 to 15 percent of the workforce is laid off or fired every year And so I believe that frequently when you get laid off you knew it was time to jump to new s curve And you just wouldn't and so the universe kind of gave you this nudge so I guess recapping, you're a CEO, you start, you change. You'll find that a lot of people will fall in line. And to the extent that people don't, then you respectfully give them the opportunity to look for something else um, because, and and more often than not, they will, I think they'll choose to on their own.
0: Yeah, And I think that this goes to the heart of this question, right, where this conversation we're having around change and change being hard you know it could be anything like you know i know i need to change jobs or i know i need to go to the gym or i know i need to you know quit smoking or i know i need to do whatever it is right Mm -hmm. whatever whatever the new year's resolution is that you're trying to hang on to uh and and i think it's really important to identify the one thing that you can focus on and um there are many people out there that wait for that exact scenario you just painted where someone comes to you and goes, "I think it's time for you to go," where you've known for some period of time that mm-hmm. that in fact is the case. But you just felt paralyzed potentially about the, you know, the idea of going and finding a new job and working on your resume and going out and interviewing and starting all over again, whatever it might be. Uh, and so that self-disruption, you know, are there are there exercises? Are there things that is it, you know, to-do lists? Is it, you know, what is it that you would say to somebody who goes, you know, I actually really do want to work on this part of myself. I don't want to be perfect around change, but I need to be more embracing of it.
1: Mm -hmm. (sighs) Mm-hmm. It's a really simple um, response, which is just to do more of it and start with simple things like, you know, drive a different way to er- to work. Um, I started to say earth. I'm not Elon <laughs> Musk. Um, um, you know, drive a different way to work. Um, go, you know, go to a different restaurant. And I think actually I'm more to stretch yourself even more because that's kind of simple is be willing when people present you with ideas to do their ideas. So for example, if so often we don't like ideas unless they're ours. I mean it's called the endowment effect. I, I love an idea if it's mine. And so, but if you present it to me, even though this is the exact same idea, I'm not gonna like it as much. And so if we will practice just listening to other people's ideas and then trying those ideas, that's actually helping us get comfortable with change. And and importantly, it's also helping us um, be open to new ideas that are going to help us be better at what we're already doing. So it's going to have this sort of double whammy in a good way effect. And so I think there are these simple, simple ways that we can um, things that we can do to actually practice change, which Most of us think, okay, I need to move. But no, there are simple things on a daily basis, these micro actions that can help us practice changing so that when it comes to really disrupting ourselves, we're ready to do it because we've sort of been doing it every day all along in these really small increments.
0: And I think it's just like exercising, right? You you, you don't just wake up one morning and go, I'm going to completely be disruptive in my life, in my personal life, in my professional life, and go do the Iron Man on the Big Island. Right. right like right like, like you got to right. kind of go i'm gonna ride my bike and then i'm gonna learn, you know then i'm gonna swim and then i'm gonna like run right, right. And you kind of have to get there um and and i think that it is a it is a muscle you have to exercise over time uh but you said something that was that i wanted to just go back to which was you know people if they think it's their idea or not their idea right that they're mm-hmm. a little more resistant and so i think one of the things that as a as a really great leader would be to get people to, uh, you know, feel like it's their idea, right? That they come to the conclusion on their own. You just kind of led them there with ideas or projects, right? Or you know, ways in which you could actually highlight for somebody uh, that they actually have these strengths they may not even know. You see it, so give them a project where they really can shine, and then they go, "Wow, I didn't think I could do that." And you set them up for success. And even if it's failure, right, the response would be one of that encouragement because you want them to keep pushing through until they find it because on the other side of it, they're all of a sudden going to have these, uh, you know, they will have exercised that muscle a little bit and they'll feel more confident about doing that change. Would you agree?
1: Absolutely. And great leaders do that. And yet it is so hard because for two reasons, number one is that our ego gets attached to things. And so it takes a lot of maturity to be able to do that. And number two, it takes a lot of patience because when you're allowing people to come to a conclusion about a strength that they have on their own time, think about the low end of the learning curve, a lot's going to be happening. They're going to be doing a lot, and it's not going to look like very much is happening. So I, I do think as a leader, like you just said, I think it's great is let people arrive at that in conclusion on their own. But it it takes a great leader to do that. It really does.
0: Well, I think I think the big challenge today is – uh, you know, many say like speed is the new currency, right? I mean, it gets mm-hmm. tossed around a lot. And uh, while I agree with that at some level, I think it's really challenging when that message may be given when it comes to this kind of personal change, right? Because that is just not something that happens fast. And so if the market is getting highly disrupted and the CEO is saying, look, you know, you know, we have to disrupt ourselves or we're gonna become disrupted, right? We've mm-hmm. gotta get try to get ahead of this and trying to accelerate the pace of everything simultaneously. So it could be how quickly products come out, uh, you know, marketing campaigns, which, you know, obviously take time to land. They don't just, you know, you don't just run it and then, you know, you you have a big hit. There are very few companies that have been able to get to sort of the 50 million users and, you know, like Angry Birds 35 days, kind of a thing (laughs) that some has spent decades. So the pace of change, uh, as that speeds up, how can companies keep the personal side at pace? Right? Because if there's this disconnection, I'm guessing, right, that the company is sort of running faster and the people aren't keeping keeping up, you have a problem. Or if the people are running faster and the company isn't keeping up, you have a problem.
1: Right. So one of the things I've done is um, I've taken, like I said a minute ago, on the S curve of you know reimagining it. Well, I've also looked at this now as whenever you're running a business, you're running a collection of S curves, and this is what my next book is about and how to optimize your your core or your workforce, you want to have 70% of your workforce at any given time in the sweet spot of the S-curve where all their neurons are firing and they're competent and they're confident. And you want to have 15% at the high end of the S-curve where Things are easy, but they know exactly what they're doing, so they're able to bring people along before they jump to their new S-curve and get engaged and innovative again. Then you want to have 15% at the low end who are figuring out what they're doing, but they're also asking all sorts of dumb questions because they're questioning, why is it that we're doing it this way? They're not really dumb. They're just annoying. They're important questions. And so... We know from the research that the companies that are able to outperform on a variety of financial metrics are those that prepare for a new curve before they need to prepare. By managing your corporation or your organization as a collection of S-curves, you're always going to be in, in a situation where you're going to be able to move a pace or fast enough the, um, in order to manage the technological innovation. So, so that's, that's my prescription for doing that. I mean, there's always going to be some sort of mismatch, but I think you're going to be able to manage it because you're going to have people who are on every stage of the curve and are, are singularly equipped to manage the change, um, in, in, you know, vis-a-vis their peers.
0: Yeah, and it, it's a great point, and I'm super excited about the book. Now that, now that we got an idea about what it's about, like, that's that's fantastic. Uh, my my, I whenever I hear those things, you know, whether it's you know I'm talking to you or I'm talking to Jeffrey Moore or you know, and anybody who has done these big or Clayton right, these big sort of think crossing the chasm and innovators dilemma, where it's these blue ocean strategy, whatever it might be, I always worry about this gap between the ability to understand it philosophically, right? The strategy of it and the execution of that in the field, you know, and I may mean an in, to an individual contributor, right? That that the gap of those two things getting bigger because intuitively, right? Multiple S-curves make sense and in the sweet spot, but that also has a big trickle-down effect, right? Of allocating resources, people, money, investment, marketing dollars, you know, how, how much time you give each of those sweet spots to continue to grow and and it's and it's almost like a chess game right you're moving yep. pieces and parts around in this perfect uh almost like an orchestra right it's almost like a perfect symphony of movement the right mm-hmm. note at the right time kind of a thing uh and it requires a, an organization that is comfortable with agility and change uh you know and and, and is capable of absorbing that level of potential disruption both personally and in in the job so what do you what are you learning around that execution gap if anything at all
1: well so 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 first of all we know that there are companies capable of of doing it um, mm-hmm. and so because we've seen seen companies who are capable of allowing their people to rotate internally um, companies like a wd40. Um, I, not to say that they have followed my my framework, um, but in looking at their engagement scores and then taking my diagnostics, there is some interesting positive correlation, which is exciting for me. But what I, what I would say is that there is always going to be a gap between what we know and what we do. And that's why each one of us are continually trying to learn. Um, I mean, I think about, I've been studying Benjamin Franklin and how he had this exercise, right? Of things that he was gonna focus on. He was gonna focus on temperance this week and order next week. And then he was going to focus on humility and then he came back to temperance. And so I think the same is true for us is that when we find a framework um, for approaching the world that really makes sense to us and at this point in time. We, we go in, we figure it out, we do the best we can, and then we just keep learning, um, knowing that we're, we may cycle back to it, but then we'll just continue to improve. Uh, again, back to a point that I said earlier is I think that we, we underestimate how much we can do right in the sphere, you know, right within the place that we are today. And so yes, there will always be an execution gap. But I think that we can close it a lot faster than we think we can.
0: Well, that's great because I think that, uh, you know, for those that are listening, right, and take the time to, you know, read your, your, you know, your two books that you already have out and then this one that's coming out or others, you know, taking the time to really invest in that personal development side of yourself so you can sort of have a new lens or like we like to say the beginner's mind of trying to forget my muscle memory and DNA of the way I've always done things and trying to challenge oneself to be, uh, you know, more open to these new ideas and then how to execute on them, I think is really important, especially as, as I was saying, the pace and speed of business is is not slowing down anytime soon.
1: No, it's not. But I think that we're also learning faster than we've ever learned. I mean, I look at, you know, we have children, we have a daughter in high school and a son about to go to college. And I just look at, you know, at their SAT scores or ACT. I mean, they're all learning faster and are more competent than we were. And so I think, yes, the pace of change is accelerating, but I think our ability to learn and our ability to grasp is, is accelerating as well. So that kind of going back to your initial question is I'm very bullish on the future because I think that we are so capable and there are lots and lots of opportunities for um, for for all of us.
0: Well, Whitney, that's a great way to end this podcast. It feels like time just flew. Uh, I so appreciate your, your time with us today and let, let the listeners know, you know how they can find you and, and what you've got going on so that they can learn more about, about what you've got going, uh, happening.
1: Well, you can find me at WhitneyJohnson.com. And if you want to take the S-curve locator and see where you are currently in your current role on the S-curve, you can just go to WhitneyJohnson.com backslash diagnostic. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Johnson Whitney. So those are probably the two easiest ways to find me.
0: And when's the when's the new book
1: coming out? May 1st, 2018. So it's a while away. Um, I'm in the final round of revisions, sending them off to Harvard Business Press. So I'm pretty excited about it.
0: Well, excellent. We look forward to it. I so appreciate all the work that you do. And I so appreciate you being on here. And I'll look forward to talking with you again when the book comes out.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Tiffany.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the What's Next podcast. Appreciate your support. Please make sure you subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a review. Head on over to tiffanybova.com backslash next for show notes and additional insights from me. And I'll see you on the next show. Thanks again.